podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello, everybody. This is the first quantcast of the 2020s, and it is the first that we record from our brand new studio in the city of London. Mauro Cesar here speaking. Today, I'm with Andrew Dickinson from Bank of America, and we will be talking about the risk management of central clearing. Hi, Andy. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here. How are you? Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You are the lead, the leader of the CCP analytics group of uh, uh, of the bank. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been awareness of the riskiness of CCPs, central counterparties, for a long time. But um, that has got to a new level since September uh, 2018, when, let's say, a rare event occurred. Now, I call it a rare event, but uh, as we know in finance, rare events are rather common. Uh, just to recap what that episode uh, was about, in September 2018, a Nasdaq clearing member defaulted. Not only the margin posted by the clearing member wasn't sufficient to cover the losses, but also two-thirds of Nasdaq's default fund was eroded, resulting in a loss of 114 million euros, which, as it works, um, has, been, has been shared by all other clearing members. A debate followed on how a large but unprecedented market move could cause a member's default that impacted the default fund and how it could do it so heavily. Now, for our conversation, it's useful here to give a bit of a background and concisely explain how a CCP works. So, Andy, what what are the crucial aspects of central clearing and why are they important with regards to this event? So it probably is worthwhile maybe initially contrasting with bilateral clearing. So pre-crisis, most OTC derivatives were cleared uh, on a bilateral basis. So for, for, let's suppose that we were two broker-dealers, we would enter into a bilateral agreement. I suppose we entered into a swap with each other. You pay me fixed, I pay you floating. And then over the course of the of the, of the trade, we'd settle the derivative cash flows. Um, and typically, there would be a variation margin posted, which would track the changes in the mark-to-market of the trades as the level of interest rates change. Now, although we'd be posting variation margin, there would still be residual risk related to potential losses on your portfolio during the period between you defaulting and you being closed out, and vice versa, if I were to default. Now, following the crisis, there has been a regulatory requirement to essentially clear many OTC derivatives, most materially interest rate swaps. So currently, I I believe that over three quarters of all interest rate rate swaps are essentially cleared, and they are um, an increasing fraction is being cleared. Now, what would... so? Our swap would be transferred or novated to CCP. Our, the original swap would be broken into two back-to-back swaps. So you would then be exchanging cash flows with a CCP, and I'd be exchanging offsetting cash flows with the CCP. Now, in addition to, to variation margin, you would be required to post initial margin, which is intended to cover losses between... The, related to um, changes in the value of your portfolio between 
your default and the auction of your portfolio. Now, a fundamental difference is the way in which losses are shared. So when that derivative is novated to the, to the CCP, you will only have a fractional exposure to myself, but then it would have exposure to all the other members. Although you may never have entered into a trade with those members in the first place, in particular, you'll be exposed to the quality of the members uh, at the CCP. So, <clears throat> the um, now, more broadly, given this secular shift in the way that derivatives are centrally cleared, um, the CCP is poorly understood and the modelling is lagging the, uh, the uh, environmental changes in the clearing landscape. So, you and Life Anderson, who is the global head of uh, Quant Strategy at Bank of America, uh, looked into this problem um, and looked into uh, CCP riskiness. The results of your work um, are published uh, on Risk.net in the January print edition. Uh, the paper has got a catchy title, uh, which is uh, One Bad Apple. Um, now, at high level, um, generally, what is the article about? So the the article is an extension of a longer paper we published in uh, your sister journal, which is the Journal of Financial Market Infrastructure. The it aims to quantify uh, a cert the impact of a certain wrong wave risk. So what was conspicuous conspicuous when we looked at the details of the default at Nasdaq was that the member defaulted on the same day that his cleared portfolio incurred a 17 standard deviation move, the largest market move in uh, Nordic versus German power, f uh, power futures since the beginning of trading in that pair. So it's clear then that this is clearly a risk that under normal circumstances, initial margin should cover reasonable market moves. However, if you have members that are clearing positions so large that severe but plausible market moves may trigger their default through their margin call, then this greatly amplifies the risks. So rather than it being improbable that a member defaults at exactly the same time as they incurred a large loss on their cleared portfolio, it happens with almost certainty. And so the roots of this model is to incorporate this observation in terms of a broader framework that Life and I put together a year or two ago. So um, this is the, the background and uh, jumping uh, forward to the conclusion. So what, what is the key takeaway from this study? So the key takeaway is that the risks posed by members clearing outside portfolios are exponentially larger than those that are primarily involved in hedging. So if I um, unpack that for you, if a, a, a good analogy we've, 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 we've found useful internally is that I suppose, if we take a physical uh, analogy where, let's suppose that you were concerned about floods and you lived on the coast. Mm -hmm. the, you may uh, buy a, a life raft to, to plan for the event, but there is a flood. 
Now, you'll be fine so long as the f there's no issue with your life raft precisely when, you're, you, when, when, you, when the flood happens. However, I mean, the, the observation uh, is that if you, if you leave your life raft at the top of the beach, then precisely when the flood occurs, your life raft washes away and the, the flood itself um, undermines the efficacy of your risk risk control um, so what happens not only would but also the, there are the whole issues are exacerbated by fat tails because floods are fat tailed and occasion there's a tsunami and so when it goes wrong it goes very badly wrong so what we do in the model is present a, a dynamic view that of a CCP which reflects the complex structure of the CCPs, in particular loss mutualization and the initial margin. But factor in the effects of these this wrong way risk, which is the almost perfect correlation between a member's default and losses on their portfolio. Um, and the punchline is that if you you allow one member clearing out size speculative positions, they can contribute more risk than all the other members put together. And hence the title, One Bad Apple. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, so from the modeling viewpoint, uh, keeping it to uh, you know, the, the, the level of, of a podcast, but what are the key innovative ingredients of your method? So the, a lot of the, the groundwork was done a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. which is, I think we... Were probably one of the, f the first people to write down a tractable dynamic model for a CCP. There, the, there's, uh, um, there's some, some fairly vast math um, involving isotropic levy processes and certain risk measures. But the focus of this is really to, to look at the economic picture because you can explore most of the risks within the context of a discrete time model and it doesn't obfuscate the economic picture from behind uh, behind um, a lot of probability so there's probably at some point we'll probably write up a a the model in continuous time which is a bit more technical but this is of greater interest to, to the pure quants than, than the yeah. wider industry uh, and just to add so you um, you also look at a uh, picture by observing Credit and funding uh, and funding issues um, in an analogous, analogous way to what you uh, the way you calculate CVA and FVA. Exactly. So right? the punchline in the in the broader in the broader model is that um, building upon uh, an idea that was in Life's paper that he did with Michael Bickton, Alexander Sokol, um, yep. which we won quantity of for a couple of years ago, is a slick risk scaling argument, which means that practically. What it means is that you can start from a simple XVA system. So most most broker dealers calculate their XVAs on some kind of cross-asset simulation. So mm -hmm. they build some large cross-asset simulation driven by Brownian motion. Now, to incorporate initial margin, VAR-based initial margin, and fat tails, to retrofit that into existing space systems on the face of it seemed a very large task. But it turns out that 
but you can do a lot analytically. And so basically what you you can do some uh, mathematical reasoning to come to the conclusion that all you need to do is, is simulate a zero initial margin, variation margin only exposure profile, which is v a vanilla task for an XVA system, and then adjust that analytically to to capture the combined effects of initial margin and fat tails and runway risks. And uh, you mentioned runway risk, and uh, maybe you should say here that um, it's not what uh, runway risk is normally described as. This is a, a slight, uh, say, variation uh, to adapt to the context of CCP in which uh, we are looking at it as the correlation between the losses of a, a clear portfolio of a member and the member's default itself. And uh, do you think so far runway risk in the context of CCP has been neglected in the literature and in practice? I think that, so there's, I think there are two or three flavors of runway risk that, that would appear naturally. So, that, and some of them we, we touched upon in the, in the longer form paper, and also I think in T.S. Arnstorff's paper in Risk a few months ago, he touched upon them as well. So I think that, the, so there are, one type of runway risk is that it just so happens that defaults and extreme market movements are coincident as because of some broader market turbulence. A, another linkage may be that the default of a member may trigger market volatility, either through the the liquidation of their portfolio or through some, some contagion effect. This third effect, which I'm not aware of anything in the modeling area, um, is looked at is an even more severe runway risk, which is that the loss on the portfolio itself is the trigger of the default. So the mechanic is that eventually a particular member's portfolio will incur an extreme loss larger than anything that's been seen historically. An initial margin will be breached. The, the problem is that if that is a large unhedged speculative position, then they default precisely when they have a large payable. So the NASDAQ event was, the, the events were so along these lines. There were two other important ingredients, which was the auction process, which there's been a, a number of nice um, papers in Risk Magazine on. Uh, but also there's a an additional facet to the problem, which is less well publicized, is the fact the initial margin was actually rather conservative. So if you, in the article we reference the uh, an article in Reuters where they go through what the initial margin was um, for a basis position. And because of how this methodology, which is known as SPAN, works and how it's configured, it was rather punitive for a basis position. So th and those two other effects, the auction and the conservative the initial margin, more or less overset, offset. Um, and you're left with this, this initial runway risk. And then, so if you go back a bit further, though, you have the, the previous mutualized loss was at a, a Korean CCP, KRX. Mm -hmm. um, the member, it, the, the, the details were slightly different, but it was similar in flavor. So what happened there was that there was a um, automated trading failure. There's an issue with an e-trading strategy. 
and the loss incurred was the trigger of their default. So um, you had the same, although it wasn't to do with the market move, it was to do with their trading activity, and it was exacerbated by some issues with the frequency of margining. The the event was very similar in flavor, where the central clearing activity was was the trigger of their default, and it depleted all their capital. And the point is that, in our view, that the initial margin on its own is not an, a sufficient risk mitigant in isolation. It needs to be complemented by suitable controls in order to prevent members clearing outside clear unhedged positions. So I suppose this is uh, already uh, what uh, the light that your paper sheds on, uh, uh, on, on the NASDAQ event. But if you have to expand a little bit on that, what, what do you think, uh, how do you think we can look at that event in the light of, of your paper? So I, th um, I, I think that it's telling that the default happened exactly the same time as the largest market move, and more, more severe than anything had been seen previously in the basis between uh, Nordic and German power futures. Um, the, in our view, a, a, a reasonable risk metagant and one that would have prevented the loss would have been to have limits in place. So we are, um, there's been, in the wake of the NASDAQ uh, default, there's been a series of meetings organized by the FIA and ISTA um, to, to go through the concerns of the broker-dealers. Um, we and our peers are putting, suggesting that there needs to be strengthening of regulation to, to, to either impose limits or stronger membership criteria, or the very least to um, have greater transparency. The other thing, the other thing with the Nasdaq event was that there was very little transparency to the, to the other members, and, and it was it wasn't entirely clear to them that you had direct clearing clients. So the, the feedback you you gave at the time uh, was uh, forward looking, but what what do you think should have been done differently at the time it happened? Um, I th that might be a bit of a uh, contentious subject <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it out but we have another another few things to, to, to discuss here actually um, so going back to your paper if um, a CCP uh, adopted your paper today um, what do you think could go differently um, as in if they use it as a model or do you think they will they will allow a member to take such uh, speculative positions and so large uh, or would uh, uh, be allowed, and uh, but with a, a larger margin, for example, what do you think it would happen? So I think there are. It, it would aid transparency in terms of the CCP risk management. The I, there are various risk mitigants. One one is to just limit the size of the positions. So you could say that a um, cap the initial margin, which represents a an extreme but plausible quantile of the potential losses. 
as a fixed fraction of their liquid capital, for example. Alternatively, you could limit the membership. Or thirdly, you could increase the initial margin um, for those members that, that pose the greatest risk. So the, the in uh, we've done some analysis, which we presented at Quant Minds um, last year, which was basically went through well, how much more initial margin would such a member need to post? And in order to make all of the other members no worse off, you come to the conclusion that they would need to post a multiplicity of the initial margin, a significant multiplicity. Which means discouraging them to do the trade in the first place. Exactly. So there's a question about whether such members should be clearing as a client of one of the members. That is the... So who do you think is the uh, recipient of this idea? Uh, is it the CCP um, that might consider adopting this methodology or is it for regulators to um, impose it? I think that I think it has value in aiding transparency to the regulators, CCPs, and to the members. And so, in general, the CCPs are complex, and it is difficult to untangle all of the complex features, and the, the opacity um, makes it difficult for members to to appraise their risk. They, some do, uh, assume that there is no risk at all, but that's not consistent with with historics. The implication of, so one way of, uh, one useful means by which to use the model is to consider, allows broker dealers to consider limits they need for, to impose the CCPs, and factoring in the, the, the quality of the membership um, and the efficacy of the initial margin methodologies and, and other risk management. Um, what you find is that CCPs are quite different in the risks they pose. So for the large OTC CCPs, you tend to find that virtually all the members are large banks that are well capitalized, primarily involved in hedging, and for which their central clearing activity is a small fraction of their total risk. Now, for LFO-listed uh, CCPs, the picture is quite different. Sometimes you have mid-sized hedge funds or, in the case of NASDAQ, a natural person directly clearing. And you, when you quantify this, so there, there are some various extensions of this model where you can look at, say, what is the likelihood of depleting the default fund and so on. And what you find is that it's dramatically different than, say, an OTC CCP, such a swap clear, versus some of the smaller LFO CCPs. Um, I've been sharing this with uh, CCPs or regulators or members. So we in the CCP analytics team um, are involved in a number of uh, risk uh, committees and working groups at CCPs. Um, we've raised this question about the uh, risks posed by outsized positions to, to NASDAQ. Um, uh, more broadly, there is, uh, we, we, we aim to push this, uh, this, this message forward. Um, but I think there appears, appears to be consensus now emerging on the broker-dealer side uh, through these working groups that this is a risk. Um, one thing probably worth mentioning is that the, um, 
there is some under US regulation there is some allowance for this precisely this risk because what came out of uh, Black Monday is that you had uh, several defaults triggered by margin calls um, and in fact some of the CCPs had to be bailed out at the time and this was the origin of additional margin both for CCPs and ultimately for, 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 for SIM the um, under US regulation there is a qualitative requirement to actually ensure that positions cleared are commensurate to the financial capabilities of the member and I think there's there is some scope for strengthening that elsewhere including the EU and the UK. So you're saying this type of risk has just been acknowledged now uh, or very recently. Uh, what is the feedback on on your solution? Do you think it's got chances to be adopted sometime soon or, or would potentially other solutions be adopted? So there's a debate going on, but what think, is the sense of... I think that the, the, the conclusion for this, there's this really an application of a broader model, but the, the, this runway risk is, is really a order of magnitude conclusion. It's just saying, it's saying that if you allow members to clear outsized positions, then you can contaminate the entire default fund pool. How there are some challenges in how you actually would set some of these parameters. Um, you practically at the moment, you would the best you could do would, would be based upon financial statements and publicly available membership data. But we are asking, we're putting in a request for enhancements of certain quantitative disclosures. So there are there's a there are some standardised quantitative disclosures required from CCPs um, by CPMI ASCO. Um, and there seems some appetite for enhancing them to represent, to reflect this leverage, the distribution leverage of the members and distribution of credit worthiness of the members. Um, and if, they, if that goes through, then it would make it much easier to, to uh, suitably uh, configure the model. Are you still working on uh, developing this model further, or is it? So this is a, this is a part of a broader strand of work. There's a, there are a number of questions related to this, which um, is, say, look, looking at you know what are the you know some economic capital questions related to CCPs. Um, but the broad, the, going back to the original longer paper, um, the, the intention is to look at the funding question as well as the as well as the credit risk question. So the conclusion is that. If the CCP is well run, the credit risks are are minimal. Not, there are exceptions like this this corner case here, but then every, the mandatory clearing has led to a transformation of credit risk into funding costs. And what you come to the conclusion is that the cumulative drag of funding initial margin dominates everything else. If there aren't these runway risks present, understandably now. Um how about yourself? Are you working on other projects as well, or are you focusing especially on this? I'd say um, in terms of the research that I'm, I'm working on, I have a few things on the CCP side that I'm, I'm looking at, which are basically taking this, uh, the underlying model to its logical inclusion. My, my other interests are, you know, I, I, originally I was a rates exotics quant, and I, I still have some interest in traditional um, pricing questions um, and also I was 
my previous role, I was responsible for FEA modelling at JP Morgan. So there is the, this, there's some overlap with this question here. Um, yeah, is, that, this is. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a few more things that need to be closed out on on, on this model. But then, okay, Andy, thank you very much for joining us. It was very interesting, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>